Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host and the author of The Sisterhood, A Love Letter to the Women Who Shaped Me. Also, our very own producer Dale has a brilliant brand new book now available for pre-order, Painfully British Haikus by Dale Shaw, published by Michael Joseph and out on November 14th. Here's stamps. Why are books of stamps so tiny and losable? Fit them with a flair. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while and you're looking for ways to support our work, buying our books is the very best way to do that. This week, our guest is the food writer, Diana Henry. She is the award-winning Sunday Telegraph food writer. She's the author of several acclaimed, best-selling books, the latest being From the Oven to the Table. But she's also a force of nature, a writer who inspires a fierce, deep, tender love in everyone who reads her. Reading Diana's books makes me feel as though I'm necking champagne cocktails. The prose sparkles, but her words create a lasting warmth like a generous measure of cognac. How to Eat a Peach isn't only one of my favourite food books of all time, but one of my favourite books. I've stayed awake in bed, unable to turn the light off and stop reading her stories about dining in Italy and dinner party menus. We went to North London, where she fed us lamb stew and couscous and shared her love for Laura Ingalls Wilder, Sybil Bedford and Alice Waters. We are in Diana Henry's beautiful, beautiful kitchen and, and living room. It's the... There's so much light in here. There's a huge... That's, sort of, that's beyond the skylight, isn't it? That is a glass roof. Um, and I mean, it's really exciting, actually, being in the kitchen and knowing this is where everything... You know, this, this is your desk. So I go between there and here and the sofa. I'm a big believer that you, can, you don't always want to sit somewhere at a table or a desk to write. So sometimes I go into the corner of that sofa. We fight over that corner because that's the favourite bit. And you can you can be more relaxed, so you can write there, and then you go back to the cooker. I still find it quite difficult going between the two. You think I'd have worked out in twenty years how to balance things, but some day, you know, if I have a day and it's only a writing day, oh my god, I love that because it means I can go into the one zone and I don't have to do the standing there with the back end of an envelope. Do you sort of make notes as you go and then write? Every, sorry, this is a really kind of naive question. I or... usually write up what I think the recipe will be and rough quantities on the laptop and then I scribble these down on a bit of paper and then I test it and then I adjust as I go along so I'm literally sometimes standing there at the cooker 
with a, you know, with my set of measuring spoons, it's like another spoon, another spoonful, another spoonful, and I write plus one, plus one, plus one. So, and that, that's the way you do it. That's the worst thing about being a food writer, is kind of like testing recipes. Sometimes when I'm not testing a recipe and I'm just actually cooking, I get my notebook out and I think, oh god, and they think, oh my god, I haven't taken any notes because this is just this is just cooking, and that that's lovely. Uh, how many recipe books and cookbooks do you think are here? Like? I've got. I don't know how many are here. This is this is not even half of them because they're they're here. Fifty on a shelf, and they're one, two. Three, I know there are four thousand all together across the house, but they're they're in the other room next to this one. They're in my bedroom, they're in the study, they're on the landing, and they're even in the spare room. But I am going to let things keep catching my eyes. These are organised, um, Daisy. Are they all? Yes. Organized? So, so this is um, all of the of all of the very top ones. Are just for reading, so they're not uh, recipe books. And is that so you can kind of you don't necessarily have to grab them in a hurry? Yeah, and I don't, and I just kind of climb up there in a chair and get them. I'd like one of those like oh, library steps. I would like. Um, do you know Deborah Robertson? Thank She's you. got these library steps, and I'm oh. really jealous. Um, are they the ones on the on the casters? That yeah, you can, and you can slide them along. So yes. this is all vegetables. This is all fish. This is meat. Uh, sometimes you see they get a bit messed up because there's vegetables there that shouldn't be there. Then it goes on to countries. So this is America. Uh, this is America. Then it goes on to Australia. This is India. Um, Southeast Asia. There's France. There's Italy. There's Scandinavia. There is... Where are we? Middle East. Middle East, Spain... And that goes on to, and that's more Italy there. And that's all the baking stuff. Yeah. There's loads of baking stuff. I don't know how I managed to get so much baking stuff. And then the UK is kind of below that, and that's preserving down on the bottom shelf. But but not everything is here, because what I do is you, can't, you, you, know, you take things down to read, and then they end up in piles on this table, and then you have to set aside time to put them back. And then you might take something, you take it up to your bedroom, or you take it up to the study, and then... These days, it used to be I knew where everything was. And these days, because I couldn't even find Claudia Roden's book of Middle Eastern food. Is that your first? Well, that was a very important book, which is why I thought I should pull it out, but I couldn't find it. So I've obviously, I've been reading it and not put it back where it should be. And every so often I have to do that, but it's a big job. It's somewhere in the house. So when, were, when and where did you first read Oh, book? well, I had, I was bought my first cookbook when I was six. So it's this book called The My Fun to Cookbook. And Ursula Cedric did the pictures. It's like these big dog and these big... I mean, lots of people my age, that was the first cookbook they really fell in love with because they're big cartoon characters and the recipes are really doable. So that was a that was a big thing. And then I bought my first cookbook with my own money when I was 12. And it was a pro-leaf book about entertaining because that was one of the reasons I really liked the idea of cooking was it was this kind of fantasy away from what I grew up in. You know, world of parties and kind of like, you know, um, martinis and glitter. I mean, my mum had all of the Cordon Bleu part works when I was growing up. So even when I was a young, I was kind of like seven or eight, I used to sit there really late at night and I used to be going through these until I couldn't keep my eyes open anymore because it was a window onto this other world. And cooking has always been that for me. It's always been a way of kind of going 
places, I think. And if you come from, I come from a really small town in Northern Ireland, so we had no exotic ingredients. Honestly, I mean, a pomegranate, it could as well have been a unicorn for all I knew. <laughs> so when I read about these things in things like the Arabian Nights, it was like, oh, does that exist? Does this not exist? Um, so I was, you know, just inspired by that kind of thing. And my childhood reading, I mean, it didn't all have food in it, but things like... Um, you know, Little House in the Prairie, Little House in the Big Woods. Mm. I love those. We were read those. The maple syrup, tapping the maple syrup and then boiling it down. And I tried to read those books to my to my own two boys. They were not interested. Because basically it's all about putting stuff up for winter. You know, kind of like putting pumpkins away, making things, drying meat, canning and preserving. And I actually wondered myself when I reread them as an adult, I thought. I am amazed. I love these. But it was, I think it was that gathering in, mm. you know, and creating a home and putting things away and just making stuff. It's interesting, isn't it? Because they were in so much danger all the time, but the books felt very, very safe. They were really kind of blanketing themselves against but, the outside world. Because that's what they spent their time doing, Do you really. remember when Pa eats the Christmas candy and he comes back and he's late? And, you know, he could have been sort of eaten by, like, by the or Yes. Yes. And I do, when I was, because that was read to me, and I had a real bit of like, oh, they don't get their candy, even though, you know, Pa nearly died. (laughs) I mean, Swiss out of their sweets. That whole thing about the maple syrup, I really wanted to go to a sugar on snow party from that time. And I did go to one eventually when I was kind of like, what age was I? Oh, about 36 or something like that. Were you in Canada? I was in Vermont. I'd gone there, and that was really... And the other thing I'd wanted to do, and I did around about the same time, was go to Cape Cod to see the cranberry bogs being flooded. You know where they kind of flood all the water with the berries? Because they have to do... They they have these big kind of, like, rotators, and the berries get taken off, because they're kind of... They're bog berries, so they have to be basically dislodged. Mm. And then they flip to the surface, and then they suck them all up into these... With these huge tubes into these other things where they sort them. But that, those kind of things, they just... That I just thought they were... No, it was... They, those really kind of things really made me... I just thought they were lovely. I read a lot of books when I was small set in America and Canada about quite tough lives. I mean, as well as the other stuff like, you know, The Secret Garden and North Streetfield and all those kind of things. Should we go to the America shelf? Okay, this is the... Um, well, there's two American shelves, and these are my... I don't do it so much anymore, but when I had a smaller collection... And I was kind of like feeling, you know, depressed or fed up. I would literally come down late at night, sometimes even in the middle of the night, and I would just look at the spines. And I would, I don't know, there, it was kind of like, oh, these are, this is you, this, this is where you belong, this is where you are, this is your life in a way. And it's an odd thing to say. But now it sounds very affirming. I got divorced about 14 years ago. And my ex-husband, one of the things that really bothered him were the cookbooks. We, there were so many of them in the house, and he said... You know, you, there's just too many of them. It's overwhelming. They've got to go. Some of them have to go. And I was like, but th- this is my this is my whole life. What do you mean they've got to go? Because I've been buying these since I was 12. And if you were to go through all these and the ones elsewhere in the house, they show what happened to food from that time until now because they all come from different periods. So you can see that the style of photography and things have changed. But, you know... There are books from the Nouvelle Cuisine kind of era, which I don't use anymore, but I don't want to get rid of them because as soon as you look even at the pictures, you feel, oh my God, you're back there. You're back in that particular time. But it also, it's a record of... 
gosh, I mean, trends. Know, this is the, the essence of you and who you are and who you've been. And then to say, well, some of these have to go. I mean, I know. I'd well, say get rid of the husband, go. not the books. <laughs> kind of what happened. Um, so this is the Chez Panisse menu book. Oh, by Alice Waters. Beautiful cover. Do you know who did that illustration? God, I think it's Patricia Curtin because she did all of her, she did all of Alice's um, menus as well. Alice was really fussy. Well, not just about the food at Chez Panisse, but also about the way they present it, the whole place. So the menus are all, had these wood blocks and illustrations and things, and that's very important to her. But where is Chez Panisse? Chez Panisse is in Berkeley, in San Francisco. So, and it was really, I mean, it, it changed American cooking, basically. But it was a red-letter day when I, I bought this, because I'd say this book, Claudia Roden's Book of Middle Eastern Food, which I bought on the same day in the same bookshop, and then there's a copy, look, look at the mess of it, of um, Jane Gregson's fruit book on the oh, table. Oh, it's so beautiful. And it's been very carefully put back together. Sellotaped loads of times. And you've got, it's Diana Henry 1984. Yeah. It's not 1984, it's Jane Gregson's fruit book. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but those were very important. And another very important book was, um, she's another American writer called Molly O'Neill. And she wrote a book called The Well Seeds and Appetite, which I think is just the best food writing there is. But the thing about... Chez Panisse and, um, and the Claudia Roden book, they're very different. I mean, Claudia's is about Middle Eastern food. It's about wanting to go back to where she comes from. It's about, you know, being divorced from how you were born and the culture that you were brought up in. And it's trying to get that back. And uh, Alice, this is about applying a French or more loosely, maybe a Mediterranean spirit to Californian food. And the time that I found this, we were in the middle of Nouvelle Cuisine, so everybody was, you know, hexagonal plates and reduced field stock and everything. And she was, she had menus like... Um, oh, I love that you, if you bent down the... Yeah, but my fa- the ones I really love. Um, baked garlic with white cheese and peasant bread. Spit roasted squab with anchovy olive butter. I mean, I still do that. New potatoes in parchment, garden salad, Linda's chocolate cups. And it's about... I mean, I did a book about menus... Two years ago, I did How to Eat a Peach. And um, and it's not surprising, really, because ever since reading this, it was that... I love that thing of putting menus together, of balancing things. The beautiful introduction and reading How to Eat a Peach in bed and just the sheer pleasure of the... the set, because I think there you talk so beautifully about entertaining and, you know, you do dream of that sort of, you know, the, the perfect guests and the sort of... It being a real experience, um, what was the first time that you sort of hosted or had a party oh where you God. had just sort of that childhood dream of... When I was a teenager and I was really precocious. I mean, my, my parents were very good in that they sort of let me get on with this and they never stopped me cooking and they bought ingredients so I could try things. But I must have been ooh, 15, probably, 14 or 15, and I, I cooked something out of the Hamlin All Colour Cookbook, which is something that... You know, it was, it was a big thing in our house and it sold millions actually when it was published in the UK. But I did this kind of braised steak and I did um, pears in red wine and I can't remember, there was probably a prong cocktail I would have thought for starter, I can't remember. But I lit candles everywhere So and I turned off the electric light. So it, honestly, it was like some kind of like religious grotto. <laughs> 
<laughs> and um, and and it was. I didn't mean it to be pretentious. That's not the way I thought of it. I didn't think I was having a dinner party, but I just wanted to create this thing that was was lovely. Of course, no alcohol. We were all drinking that sparkling apple juice uh. schlur, and um, and I had friends from my class come. But my kind of my kind of if there were kind of two things I did on a Saturday night. There's not much to do in Northern Ireland, so you went to the, the local disco, or I cooked at home with, with, I had a friend to stay, and we cooked together, so I made steak, Diane, and that kind of thing. Those really kind of like 70s kind of dishes. Um, but yeah, I just, I loved it, and I loved it from an early age. Did you sort of immediately know, because sometimes when I read cookery books, there'll be an instruction that I have no idea what that is, and I imagine sort of pre the internet, or you know, how how did you sort of get to grips with the, the techniques and the, the things that people talked about? Oh, I just used to kind of, I used to follow books and I used to cook like really stupid hours at the weekend. I go back, I worked for the BBC after I was at um, university, I went to journalism school in London, then joined the BBC. And I used to go back to work on a Monday morning exhausted because I was working my way through Mastering the Art of French Cookery. So I'd be doing things like, you know, roasting veal bones and then making stock and then reducing that down. So the only way you could do it was if you, you taught yourself. So I bought books and I was always kind of like pulling out articles. I've got boxes and boxes in the study of kind of articles that came out from that time by Jane Grigson and people like that. And it was just, yeah, you kind of, you taught yourself really at that stage. I went to cookery school years, years later because that was kind of like, why not? I got to 30 and I thought... I'd really want to do this, and I, hilariously, I thought I was quite old at thirty, so I should get on with it. Um, but I didn't. I didn't intend to work in food at all, actually, and I didn't intend to be a food writer. But I suppose that passion and that discipline combined is what. I think it's like kind it of like propelled things. But it was inevitable. I think it's really. It's sometimes I think people end up doing this thing because it, yes, it's unavoidable. Because um, you know, you know, um, Malcolm Gladwell's thing about I can never remember how many hours it's three thousand oh, yes. hours, ten thousand hours. You spend all this, you spend years and years sucking this stuff up, and because you're so interested, you don't actually really forget things either. And I also have a theory that I'm better at things that I haven't really been taught to do. Mm. You know, I've kind of taught myself. So if it's just a real interest, and I have no idea, Daisy, why it is an interest, but if that's your thing, maybe you will. Maybe you will end up doing that thing. But I was a TV producer and I didn't, until I had my first child, I, I hadn't any intention of making food, you know, my job at all. And even then, I didn't think it would become a thing. I just thought, oh, I'll give this a go. Because I went back to television for six weeks when he was eight months and I couldn't hack it. It was just like, I mean, I could, I could sort of manage it, but I was so miserable. That's when I decided... I've got to do something else and it's got to be based at home. So it was quite a practical decision. And then I just wrote things and I sent them off on spec and I and I, I got commissioned. I was incredibly lucky. Oh, so recipes or pieces that are more about food and eating? Um, recipes, but also that had an intro with them. And House and Garden was the first magazine that commissioned me. I wrote to this woman I didn't know called Leonie Hyten and I did it all in the style that they did because I'd been to journalism school, so, you know, I wasn't stupid <laughs> about what to do. But it just took off, and I, I was lucky because it just happened. I think it would be harder now, mm. to be honest. Because I suppose perhaps in some ways I think that knowing who to talk to and you know where to find them and sort of sending things off that does make it quite that sort of the analog aspect possibly makes it a little bit more complicated. But then I think that now it's it's a real saturation, isn't there, of people who 
well, want to be I, in that when world. When I started writing about food, it's really interesting. Nobody acts. I mean, it wasn't a massive thing. And when I was at university, it was considered positively middle-aged. I mean, nobody was into it. People used to laugh at me. Um, and you just, I just went on with it because it was, was my thing. But now it's become, it's just become very cool. It's hilarious. I ended up doing something cool because I am not a cool person at all. And, you so know, it's you're quite in the vanguard. Is that the expression? You were ahead of the trend. Well, it's kind of, I was just so, when you look at um, Crazy Water Pickle Lemons, which was the first book I wrote, and that was 20 years ago, I mean, it's kind of full of things that people are getting excited about now, like, you know, Labna and Sumac and that sort of stuff, guys. (laughs) (laughs) I knew about that stuff, but it was to do with that, again, that kind of coming from a small town place, so that stuff looked incredibly alluring and different and just, uh, Molly O'Neill, she writes, she has written this piece about aubergines, which I really love in her book, A Well-Seasoned Appetite. And she writes about cooking them for the very first time and how you can't describe what aubergines taste like. It's very difficult. And she tasted this thing, this vegetable that was way, way apart from where she was living in Ohio. It was a taste that was beyond our shores. And it, and I always think of that, and it doesn't just mean the flavour, it means that you, you taste another country, mm. really, when you do that. So I think that's, eating bits of cultures has always been my thing, really. And when I travel, I never feel like I go to a place as, um, totally as an outsider, because I've read about the stuff before I get there. And then when I get there, you know, I really want to try everything, and I want, if I can do, I will try to get into people's kitchens and talk to them. Like, you know, I've made a tax service. My mum does incredible. Yeah, take me to her. Um, <laughs> so you always feel you get a connection really quickly, I think, with places, because you go in through food. Where's the first place you travelled to because you were so excited about the food that you might find there? Well, we didn't go, there were four of us and in Northern Ireland, you could only get anywhere if you went via Dublin or you went via London. So we didn't travel as a family beyond Ireland until I was 17. But my first trip abroad on my own, on an airplane, and I kept thinking, they never told me about the air, they never told me about the clouds. Um, I went to do a kind of month's exchange to France. And it, you know, again, it's a kind of cliche for people my age, what, what changed them or what made them even more into food. But it was, it was that trip because they just, I stayed with the family for a month and Clotilda, who was the same age as me, she was a really great, I thought I was a good cook, Clotilda was better. So I was like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. And I just learned so much there, but not least the fact that this kind of thing we do three times a day is just really important because we do it three times a day and it can be nice. It can be completely, it can be nothing or it can be a pleasure and they weren't a wealthy family at all they were very ordinary um but they really cared about what they ate at every meal and that just I just thought this was the best way to approach life because it was the small things it was the simple things that were really important and they used to like if they went to friends for the evening and we all went out, we'd go kind of middle of the afternoon and then people would cook together. So you might make pizza do and then you might make an apricot tart and you everything kind of like was around, focused a lot on food, even though they were not, they would not have considered themselves to take food very seriously. It's just the French way of doing things. So I like that. That made a big it impact. It sounds really, really relaxed as well, that well, taking it seriously, but also not putting an enormous amount of pressure on that, the world. That's you know. what I hate about perfect. food these days. I think it's kind of like a bit fetishized. I think it's taken too seriously. I've only ever wanted people to kind of like 
eat well as a matter of course. Mm. It's just something that you almost take for granted in a way. I mean, I'm interested in it, but I don't want to talk about it all the time. I think that makes a lot of sense in this, but I mean, oh God, it's been, you know, talked about endlessly, hasn't it? The sort of that people are making things they want to take photographs of rather than things they want to eat. I know. And that, I think that's sad. I'm not sure. I talked to um, Anthony Bourdain, I'm uh. name dropping now, um, but I did an interview with him about two years before he died. Most nerve wracking interview I've ever done, although he was absolutely lovely. And I said, aren't you sick of this? Don't you think it's all gone too far? Everybody fretting about where their lemons are from and, you know, you know, whether, you know, whether they've got time to refresh their sourdough starter and that kind of thing. And he said, I think we're at the peak and it will calm down. But isn't it better than it was 10 years ago when nobody cared about these things? And, and he's right about that. But I think lots of movements get to a kind of saturation point mm. where you just want to, like, oh, tie your hair out before they then calm down. I mean, lots of great things have happened in the UK but mm, yeah there's a lot of talk about it's it a bit, a bit culty and it can be it can be very earnest as well and I'm guilty of that as well but for me I don't know I don't think it was ever about techniques although I I learned them as much as as I say a way to to get places to get out of Northern Ireland via your tongue <laughs> via that and, that and, and, and via Sorry. reading <laughs> Oh yes, I'm going to tell you have a, a Chez Panisse menu on the wall. That was, I w- that was the first time I ate there, so that was in 1992. That's the menu I ate, and that's what was, that was what was on for that entire week. She did a set dinner every evening, so Monday through to Saturday. They went open on Sunday. And I, oh God, that trip was so great. This was on, it was my honeymoon, actually. It was three and a half weeks, and it was all planned round restaurants I'd wanted to eat in in for years. San Francisco and the Bay Area for all of that or did you go across? I started off in New York and then we went to San Francisco and then we went to New Orleans. Those are the three places. Then we went to Napa Valley before we went home. Um, So those are the places that there were restaurants I really wanted to go to. Did you have crawfish in New Orleans? Yes. That was the one thing I did, because I went there, it was a couple of years before Hurricane Katrina, and I just remember the sensation of, like, of the oil of the butter really like going into my elbow creases. Uh, it's, um, I'd love to go back there, actually. It's really funny, because people are quite snooty about food in the state, you know, American food. I think it's fantastic. Well, they have such, you know, they have had such an influx of people from other cultures and other countries. I mean, that's what's made America. Mm. So... It astonishes me what you can find and the way that they're all now kind of like um, being melded together. Like you could, there's a Korean taco thing in LA. Oh my God. So I... it's just, that just amazes me. And my favourite place to eat in the world probably is New York and Portland. Oh. New York, now kind of not everybody agree because people, I haven't been for, well I've, the last time I was there was last summer. But people are now more disappointed. They say it's getting dull and LA's got all the really cool places. But I think it's partly that I layer this thing on it. Like, I fantasised about going to New York from when I was a very small child. And then when I went there on my honeymoon, it was I saw it that way, I think, with the excitement of that child. I honestly think it is the place in the world, even more than Paris, it looks absolutely the way it does in your head and it feels the way oh, you I think know. it's going to feel. It's I know, I know. The sharp, it's, you know, if you no. see London on TV or in a film and it's like, you know, Bobby's on the beat and phone boxes and it's not like that here, but Maybe New York is so it like itself. Way. I don't know if we go with that view mm. and then we impose that upon it. But I remember going to... The Empire State Building, back because I was there at Christmas as well, 
And the thing that really struck me was that the Pinsettis in the in the lobby, they all had their um, pots covered in this like used tinfoil, which seemed incredibly kind of you know nineteen fifties. It was so kind of hooky and handmade and everything. And I just I don't know. I loved the place. I mean, quite overwhelmed by it the first time I went, but I've kind of gone back for book publicity trips and have made quite a lot of friends there especially among food writers and now it's kind of like home from home but home from a home on kind of like huge energy so I love it there and I like Portland I went to Portland for the first time the year before last and the food there is just I mean honestly like leaves salad leaves they just taste of so much there and wonderful berries as well and it's also got that Portland I mean people say kind of like you know the mix they really take the piss out of it and say it's kind of like, you know, so cool and a lot. It's actually what it is, is very kind of, again, it's that kind of handmade thing. I think mm. if, I'd, if I'd been living in Portland, I would have a restaurant already. Because here, you know, it's kind of like, oh, you can do things like that. In Portland, everybody goes, yeah, just start it in the garden shed and then see how it goes. <laughs> and then if it works, then you just, you move to a bigger kind of place. So it's got that kind of, in a very laid back way, not the kind of thrusting American mm. way, that can-do sort of attitude. And I just love that. It's kind of just, it's just grown with that sort of... Really charming. Give it a go. Everything's an experiment. That's what Why I th- not? Yeah, and I don't really like that. But I, but they have great produce as well. I love, I love it there. Would you like to have a restaurant? If I were to sort of give you £10 billion and say, do what you will you know, with it. No, I used to think I really would because then... The thing about books is they're two-dimensional. And if I had a restaurant, you have be create Because the thing about books also that's wonderful when you do your own is that creating this world as you write them, they can't just be recipes. They have to have something else. And I, I try to do that visually. We talk a lot always with the designer and photographer about the feel that I would like a book to have. And in a restaurant, you have that in a living kind of way. Mm. But I could not cope with the stress and I would not like to be... I couldn't, in fact, I'm not capable of being a chef. Oh, honestly, it's probably one of my top five nightmares. <laughs> no, I mean, I went, to, I went to cookery school for a year. I went to Leith's and, you know, got through my final exams and everything. But I wasn't fast enough. I really wasn't fast enough. And I wasn't going to be fast enough because I didn't do that till I was, yeah, 29, 30. And there were, I was with 17-year-olds. But you need to start, I think, getting up to that level of... Um, energy well it's, it's basically like joining the army or something you have to be really fit I think and the hours are terrible mm. no I don't think it's for me sometimes I kind of still crave the idea of having a cafe that I could just mm. open sporadically but it's all I mean it's they're very, it's very hard yeah, I mean and I get to be. cook different things every day mm. and if I was in a restaurant I wouldn't if you could be the sort of you know the menu sort of engineer and supervisor and just you know come in and do a little bit of kind oh, of, kind of front of house someone who was and... a really good cook mm. came and said can we put our vision together yes. and we'll make the space but I will do I will basically do the cooking and I'll run the team and then you get to choose exactly how you want it to look and feel and no I'd love be on the menu. that I would love that I don't think that's going to happen though oh I, I want you to do that someone will be listening someone can you make this happen so. let's I think, ask the universe I think they are such I don't envy anyone who owns a restaurant or is a chef either. I think it's such a hard way to make money and to make a living. Because most people complain about mm. how, how much things cost. And if you've ever worked in a restaurant kitchen, and I had to do it as part of my training at least, just the level of heat, the speed, you know, everything about it, it's tough. So I never, ever feel resentful about what I spend in restaurants because I think... And you're putting on a shoe every night. Yeah. It isn't just that. It's, it's kind of like theatre and it never stops. Um, so I'm, 
I'm in awe of people who create really good restaurants, I must say. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. We'll be back to Diana soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a story so precious it could inspire an entire franchise of heist movies. This week, it's Santa Land Diaries by David Sedaris. Forgive me for using the C word so early, but I promise that you want and need this Christmas content. This is a selection of Sedaris being seasonally brilliant. The highlight is his recollection of the period he spent working at Macy's as an elf. This sentence explains why you should read it. I'm certain I failed my drug test. My urine had roaches and stems floating in it. But still they hired me because I am short. Five feet, five inches. Almost everyone they hired is short. One is a dwarf. Santaland Diaries is published by Abacus. It's out now and I can think of no better way to start this season. However you feel about it. Now, back to Diana. Off the top of your head, yeah. are there any meals from novels that you remember or food events that really stay in your head? There is um, Jigsaw by Sybil Bedford. There's lots, of, there's lots of scenes in that, actually, where she's writing about food. It's kind of like her autobiography, but it's not quite. It's sort of fictionalised at the same time. And um, I, when I teach writing, because I teach food writing sometimes, I've kind of pulled out bits of that because... The best for writing is within those pages, actually. People who are really good writers already and just happen to be writing about food. So that's the one I remember. I'm trying to think if there's any more. You mentioned Nell Stratfield, and I remember... Um, was there food in those? Well, in ballet shoes. I always think about when the lodges come and they've got the doctors, and they always have a really different and exciting sort of elevenses, you know, from somewhere exotic from their travels around I the world. I remember that. I do remember in the Bell family, there kind of being a thing about, I don't know, a, a, the, the constant thing was being around the table. Mm. And I kind of like that. I think I'm drawn to tables. I mean, you can have very romantic ideas about 
the table and where you sit to eat together because they can I mean that's where families behave at their absolute worst but I'm kind of hopeful about tables and I do think that thing about eating together largely is a good thing you know that in um in Holland I can't remember what century it was but but a table a table friend was a good friend somebody that you sat down oh, to eat with. Oh, that's really lovely. It is good, isn't it? I'm going to say something, and I'm really hoping you'll jump in and correct me, because I might be talking out of my arse, yeah. and I might have got the wrong country, but I think there's something, and it might be maybe in Greece, where your first year of marriage, you sort of think of it as being kind of a year at table. Oh, I didn't know that. And I, I will have to look this up, because I might, it might, might not be Greece at all, but there's something about the significance of sort of the way you sort of eat together and sit together to eat yeah. that first year or sort of have a you know will bless the oh, the relationship play. although it's that's not what happens these days I mean people they will eat separately and on the run and that kind of thing and I, I know there'll be people who think I'm very romantic in thinking that it's good to get around the table but I know that with my kids if I haven't seen them we haven't eaten together for a while because you know they're busy doing kind of sports things and stuff something starts to unravel mm. a bit. And um, the other thing that's not good is if you're sitting at, table to, at the table together, but you're, you're eating different meals. Yeah. I mean, my eldest and I are like obsessed with his like workouts and all the rest of it. So he's always eating massive hunks of protein. And I might have something else with the with my other son. And that it doesn't quite work. No. So I say, could we not kind of manage this whereby we're all sitting the same, eating the same thing at the table at a particular time? Is there anything that you like to cook that you know that the boys just won't be able to resist if you say it's... Oh, my God, lasagna. They love it. <laughs> they love it. I mean, God, it takes two days to make, though. I mean, you probably have to lie down and have, a like, a drip of um, espresso <laughs> afterwards. Well, because it's done in stages, you know, you've got to do the bechamel and you've got to do, do you the make your ragu. Own sheets? Um, I do sometimes, but only really if it's something like vinch grassi, which is a very... Um, which is a kind of lasagna, but it's very luxurious. It's got wild mushrooms in it's got truffles it's got um uh parma ham so if it's something like that Gosh. it's worth it's in it's in how to eat a peach it's worth then doing that but for if it's just kind of like for lasagna for a saturday night no i won't it's but, funny because me and my sisters are the same that's what lasagna. my mum makes when we're all at home oh because she knows goodness. it's a it's pure comfort mm. it's so funny that it's become such a thing that british people want you know it's Italian, and we just crave it. It's a, I think we just all want pies, and it's a, it's a pasta it is, pie. Yes, when you it's get a kind of like, it. yeah, it's a kind of bake. And I think we, yeah, that's a very British thing, to like something that's just baked in the oven. Because I, I really felt that way, thinking, skipping back a bit, because um, I'm reading at the moment from The Oven to the Table, which is out now. Oh, I love it so much. It's part, I love, partly love it because I'm quite lazy. And, it's, uh, and I love autumn winter food and cosy food but also it really does feel very Laura Ingalls Wilder like you're really yes I get that battening down the hatches vibe they're all coming in from the cold I didn't even think about that when I was right it's just the kind of way I cook from Monday to Thursday because it's easy stick something in the oven get on with other things that the um oh gosh what did you call them they're they keep coming up. Not um, tray, uh, pan, flat. Oh, those. Um, oh, yeah. They call them sheet pans <laughs> in America. Yeah, because we don't have the equivalent here. Really, we have got roasting tins or th- things that we might call baking trays that have a lip around them. Mm. So we have those. But I had to get yeah sheet pans. You have to get. I've had had to order those from the states actually. By Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> I went down. 
but they but they're useless and they're good they've got really good heavy gauge ones and they're sort of mind you it's going to be one of those things where like we'll be sheet panned out in like a couple of years time because it'll be all we do and then suddenly we'll be oh, we'll all be brazing again so it will all have, it will it will have changed as these life. things go yeah uh shall we go to is it next door the other yeah, end it is next yeah. door although kind of like i gotta say i think most of the novels in this house are yeah more Tomato, a yeah, global history by Clarissa There's always whatever's just coming in. The post is usually here. The best American food right in 2019. Yep. Um, just got that. Oh, gorgeous. Oh, yeah, me, but in German, and there's a Dutch one underneath it. That's hilarious. I don't <gasps> know where they send me these. I'm desperate to read this. Alison oh, Roman. Alison Roman. I love her. Um, yeah, because she's she's kind of like of the same thinking of, as me. You don't entertain, you just have people over and you make it not a big deal. Have you had to go at any of these yet? I haven't, because that's only that only just came a couple of days ago. But I used her first one. Oh, and I, I met Alice the first time I went to the states to do a book tour. Actually, it's hilarious because these people that you talk to on social media, and then I went to meet Alice in the Bon Appetit offices, but I'd never seen her. And you get there, and there she's standing, the New York skyline out the window, and Alison is stunning, and it's like. What am I going to say to this woman? <laughs> Look, she's a goddess standing against a New York skyline, and I am without words. Um, but we have become friends. That, let me put the light on. It's quite dark in here. Oops. So there's more cookbooks here, but there is also novels, and also this. These aren't the only ones, but these two shelves are kind of like reading for this book I've been working on for twenty years called North. And it won't be out for another four years because I've still got travelling to do and I've still got research to do. But So it's not just cookbooks, it's novels, it's poetry. It's Can kind you tell of... us about North? What's that? North, well, I just became... As soon as you could go to Scandinavia quite cheaply. So that was around about sort of 15 years ago when they started to have kind of like EasyJet and Ryanair flights to it. I had been thinking about Scandinavia for years. I like this kind of idea of further north and where I came from. So that's kind of like towards the light, towards the snow. Toward, it's another kind of mysterious place in a way. Where the stars are. Yeah, and my dad, um, when he went away on business trips, he used to bring home jars of her- pickled herrings, and they were really silvery. And I thought, God, these are great. And then, of course... Did he work in Scandinavia? No, no, he just would kind of go on trips, and then he'd bring these back. But also, then you've got, you know, Hans Christian Andersen and those kind of things you... I mean, he kind of scared me. His stuff scared me. But one of the biggest, loveliest books I had, because it had this kind of, like, white satin cover, which completely... It's, I've got it upstairs still, but it got completely trashed. But my mum got me when I was little. Beautiful illustrations. But, you know, Hans Christian Andersen. It's a funny kind of world. It's a world of princesses who can't feel the pee uh, underneath their all their mattresses. And dogs with big eyes the size of plates and that kind of thing. So it did really capture my imagination. But I love snow as well. I just, I love snow. I kind of love it anywhere. So I started travelling there to look, at, to look at the food. And when I said, what are you eating? They would kind of say, pizza and pasta. And I said, well, you're not curing your own herring. And they would be kind of like, no. Sometimes we get it in jars. And I thought... This is going to be this is going to be lost if nobody kind of like collects this stuff. So this was pre, um, you know, Noma and everything. But what's happened to Scandinavia and the whole time that I've been going back and forward is that someone did think that you know why aren't we looking at the stuff on our doorstep? 
why are we kind of eating truffles and olive oil instead? So it's been fascinating to go back and forward during that time. Evolution. Yeah, oh no, it's kind of brilliant. And then the whole thing happened in Iceland as well, where they went bust. So they had to think of ways of making money. And one of the things they did was to look at what they could grow and what they could produce food-wise, because they couldn't do things like import green and red peppers anymore and ostrich steaks, which is the kind of thing they were eating. Um, and then I've I've gone to Russia as well for, and I'm going back again next next summer. I've done a bit of Germany, but it's all of those kind. It's all of those kind of places. So it's vast. Great. No, but the trouble is, I've done so much. I don't know when to stop, and I don't know how I'm going to organise it. But it's but it's recipes. But it's also the sort of cultures around those. Like there's loads of food in Tolstoy. You know when they were in when they were in prison, Russians who'd been kind of like arrested because of what they saw as dissident behaviour. They used to read Tulsa, but they used to say it was just, it was awful because they would get so hungry just reading the descriptions. I mean, his wife, um, she wrote a cookbook. But if you think of it, in Anna Karenina, there's a wonderful, you know, there's kind of lots of meals. Mm. But there's a there's a wonderful scene where they um, make jam as well. They make strawberry jam and they have a, pour a layer of vodka on it. That's what they used to kind of like, as a seal in mm. a way, to keep it, to keep it good. And I always kind of, and there's, a, there's quite a lot in um, Chekhov as well, meals. So I kind of go through books and I light on these, but it's not just because I want to read the scenes, it's how important is food in that culture and what's it about. And the amazing thing that's happened in Russia is that once, you know, once I had communism, the food was from all over. It was supposed to be sort of like democratic. So it was from this massive, massive area with like 13 time zones. So what is Russian food? And since the end of communism, what is Russian food since then? Because they still, when it gets to Christmas and things, they eat these very old-fashioned Soviet kind of dishes because that's what... Food isn't necessarily about food that's good. It's about what brings your childhood back, Mm. that sort of thing. And there's a lot of stuff going on there, the way there has been in the Scandinavian countries, um, about what is the new Russian and what do we take. There's a great chef in Moscow who's got a restaurant called The White Rabbit. And it's quite storybook-like because he is, he's been reading things from old Russian fairy tales and building dishes based on those and also things that he had to eat when he was very small as a child. But he's bringing in new things as well. So I find that... I mean, just look, look at where people get inspiration from and for cooking. While this is happening, all these people from Russia and Scandinavia are going out and sort of emigrating and exporting what no, they've got, and that's evolving I mean, elsewhere. They've been kind of big. There was a whole kind of like Italian period in Moscow, and then there was like, oh god, they love sushi. There's a whole sushi period, and the kind of like crab is huge as well because they get these massive crabs right up from the north coast, kind of like bordering Norway. These king crabs. Have you ever seen one? They are huge. Honestly, I went on a trip to Norway to look at the food that I got sick of crab on that trip because I had so much of it. And it's the (laughs) sweetest, most delicious crab you've ever... But they just, you know, they just laugh. It's so abundant that kind of, you know... And and the same with the fish up there. Um, Yeah, it's a land of plenty as far as fish is concerned when you go up there. But so I have all this stuff to pull together. So I picked up A Year of Russian Feast by Catherine, I can't say, um, Sheremetev. Jones. Yes. So she's British, as far as I can remember. It's a long time since I've read that, actually. And it's about, yeah, staying there for a year. Wow. I don't know what this is, but it sounds complicated. 
Remove the flour pot from the refrigerator, remove the weight, unfold the cheesecloth, place the serving plate over the flour pot. That's okay, actually, because that's the thing, that's the cream cheese thing that they eat at Easter. Ah. This is much more difficult. That's the bread that they, they make at that time. Coolidge, and I've made that, oh my God, I've tried to make that about four times. So is that like an orthodox sort of dish, is it in that tradition? Yes, I think so. It's a bit, it's a bit like panettone, Ooh. which is quite a hard thing to make. Well, Seamus Heaney's Norse there, which is not a novel. It's um, it's poetry. But I read, I mean, I read that Snowdrops by A.D. Miller um, the last time I was in Russia. And that's, Snowdrops is, it refers to the, it sounds awful, the corpses that will kind of appear after the winter snow is finished. He's a, he's a journalist, but he he lived there for a while as a correspondent. And it's just the underbelly. It's the kind of, you know, the racketeering and the stuff that, that goes on there now. So is that a novel or is that... It's a, a novel. That's a but novel. But about sort of based in the... Do you read a lot of kind of crime and... No. Murder? I don't at all, actually. I don't at all. And I watch a lot of Scandinavian stuff on the television and kind of like Nordic noir. But I, the genre I do not read at all is thrillers because I can't... I lose track. I mean, I say to other people, I'm, I mean, sometimes people, they will bring me, because they think it's kind of like light reading, and I like to take it on my holidays. It's like, no, there's just no point, because I, just, I can't get into them. And there's things I can't, I can't read anyone, I can't read John Grisham. I've tried him. The, what, what's considered, I mean, this sounds really snooty, and I don't mean it to be at all, but things which people kind of think of as, oh, this is like beach reading, but, you know, it's a page turner. It, I, I can't get into them. I can't get into them in any way. I mean, occasionally I do read one and I love it, but for the most part, I don't really like people getting murdered. And I don't find that relaxing. (laughs) I just can't keep up. I'm very keen on books where not very much Mm. happens at all. (gasps) Did you read A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara? I did not. Is that the one that's very, very harrowing? Yes. And I took that to a cottage to Norfolk for a week and couldn't couldn't get could, just couldn't put it down before 3 a.m any morning and it's bleak so that combination of the bleak weather and Norfolk and that book was not great but I just couldn't I couldn't help myself because I just wanted to know what would happen that happens even with books which I do which I think are flawed because in that I didn't really believe in the relationships between the main character you know he who's been terribly abused and is now kind of like quite broken in many ways but trying to keep it together and his friends it was just like I didn't ring true at all. But at the same time, I just wanted to know what would happen. I mean, I'm terrible for reading things till three o'clock in the morning and not being able to stop it. But I, I read more American literature than anything else. I've just seen um, Richard Yates here. Oh my God, favourite. Absolutely, that's sitting book. there because my eldest son is getting into Richard Yates, actually. Ah. Well, he's good because he has no conception. He, you know, he did sciences, so he, he's got no baggage that comes to you. I say, oh, like, try Richard Yates. Um, you know, try Siri Husfed. Try Paul Oster. I thought he would love him, mm. and he did. But I don't know what the American thing is, partly because, I don't know, it fascinates me as a country, because there are ways which is kind of like Northern Ireland where I grew up, because there's that small-time thing where you feel a bit kind of like, cut off and a bit rootless and so your dreams are of getting out of it mm. there's a lot of that as a kind of theme but my uh, my favorite writers are 
Richard Yates, I think he's, I mean, I think Revolutionary Road is, I would need to come back and have five lives before I had the insight into people that he has. Oh, goodness. I mean, not only, bleak one, though, isn't it? it is Bring bleak, it but not, not only is the prose wonderful, but it is, it's kind of, it's very incisive about men and women. Mm. And I like, um, I like Richard Ford for that reason as well. I think I know Richard Ford. He did the sports writer, although my favourite book of his is, it's, I can never remember whether it's Women with Men or Men with Women, and oh. it's a, a volume of short stories. And that also was kind of like, how does he know this much about how we work together? I like Jane Smiley. Um, a Thousand Acres is just is on my list of kind of very favourite novels, although I don't like her other stuff so much. But that, again, it really reminds me of the Northern Irish thing. It's on a farm. It's these three sisters fighting for who's going to take over the farm eventually and looking for the... It's based on Lear. Ah. So they're all fighting for his affection and love. Um, and I went another time when I went on a holiday to a cottage in Galway. I didn't get out of bed for three days. Because you were so... I just read that. In the book. No, I just kind of went out for dinner and that was it. But, the, but for the rest of the time, my favourite thing, honestly, my very favourite thing is if um, I have decided I'm not going to work that day and I have a new novel and I go back into Babathet. I can't think of anything more blissful oh. than that. I do completely love it. And sometimes I think I read too much, actually. You know the way somebody tweeted the other day, let's face it, basically, we're all conned because what we really want to do is spend our time in a room on our own reading for the rest of our lives. And I know exactly what that means and what that longing is. But then you have to get out and have real life. But not just the stories. I think we... I mean, I do, like most people, love narrative. We are really... I mean, I love watching drama on television as well. The kind of like, what happens next? It amazes me what a strong impulse that is. But also, I just like... I just like to luxuriate, you know, in the words. I really do. Have you written any fiction? Or is that something that you I am, want to do? I am... What would the word be? I am doing a little bit on the side. Ah! That's what I would... I would really love to... My mother... She says, you know, practically every Christmas when I go, when are you going to write proper books? Um, and I just say, when I don't have to earn any money. When I know, but it's when I don't have to earn any money because, you know, you, you, it takes a lot to make a living as a writer who writes journalism and, and cookbooks. So, but I would, yeah, I'd love to do it. But also, until recently, I didn't really think I had the wisdom I really didn't. I'm amazed to think that someone like Martin Amos decides to kind of write in his 20s. What do you know in your 20s? Including Martin Amos, you know, I, I don't think he's especially wise and what would have made him wise at that time. But I think you have to, yeah, I think you have to know a lot. I know, I suppose there's something, perhaps it is the audacity of youth. I don't think it counts for a good novel, but it's that's well, of course, I'm going to write a story. Whereas the old, the wiser, you, the more you know, the less you know. Perhaps it was it was writing How to Eat a Peach that made me sort of think, I really want to do this because there were longer pieces of writing mm. in that. I and think that's I why was, it's my favourite. I, I got to the end of that, and I almost thought I might not write another cookbook because I thought mm, I've sort of done with this now in a way. But, you know, you're not going to make a living out of that. And the funny thing is, I come back to the cooking. It's weird because I, I get a notebook and I think my observations are going to go in here and my notes for a fiction. And then I'll be sitting on the tube and I'll go and I'll think, then I'll think about a dish I might like to cook. So I put that in the back of the notebook. So all of these books end up being about the two things. 
So I come back to cooking. I don't know why. Now, I don't know, you know, I don't normally sort of throw writers out there. We've got plenty to choose from here. But talking about novels, Americans, food writing and recipes. How do you feel about Nora Ephron? Oh, I love her. She's great. Heartburn is full of recipes. Yeah, no, she is brilliant. I wouldn't want to do that, though. I think I'd have to, I think I'd have to make a demarcation. It would have to be, "Mm, this, I do not have my food writer hat on here in a way. And that would be important to me the other thing which is funny I think if I wrote a novel it would be pretty bleak and I think that that was she was you know if you cook you're seen oh like endlessly cheerful always kind of like um dispensing you know happiness and Mm. bonhomie and sustenance I might be seen in a different way if I wrote a bleak novel and you can only write the fiction that you're supposed to write you can't you can't make it something else I think you're right. That's really interesting. I get that. I suppose a little bit like being a a comedian or someone that sort of that doing you know that's something that's sort of positive. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that people look to when they need joy and sort of sustaining and during difficult times. And and the other thing is, I wouldn't ever want the book commissioned because I thought, oh, she sells a lot of cookbooks, so this will probably sell as well. So I would never send. A, I wouldn't send any fiction like under my would name. You, ah, you do it. Do no. you know? I mean, have you thought of pseudonyms? I want to ask you, but obviously we can't. Um, have to keep the list <laughs> out. Tell you that, Daisy, because <laughs> then my cover would be blown. Of course, of course. When we're, when, I'm just curious. When we're not recording, <laughs> my secret's safe with me. But I think writing a novel, yeah, would be would be wonderful. But I'm I'm sort of working on short stories at the minute. Oh, I mean, I think they're harder. I don't know. I I. Somebody recommended her on um, Twitter. I get nearly all my book recommendations from Twitter these days. It used to be the Guardian Review on a Saturday. And then I follow a guy called John Self, who lives in Belfast, and he writes for the Irish Times a lot. Um, Catherine Taylor. I follow Catherine Taylor as well, who does a lot of reviewing. And all the time they throw out things like, who's that? How do I know I'm not known by that person? So Catherine was writing about Mary Gateskull. Oh, my God. Oh, you love her. Do you love her? I didn't even who she was so I have upstairs on my bed right at this minute is a book of her short stories and they're not like anybody else's short stories they're just there's much more in them they're like they are you know as much as you might know at the end of a novel and you know the way that normally in short stories a lot can't be said a lot kind of kind of like there's not a lot of description or there's not a lot quite often about the character there's lots of bits left out for some reason, when I have finished hers, I don't feel that. I feel like I really understand this character. I just remember finding her as a teenager and her novels, and I think my parents had them, but it wasn't... I mean, I don't think they'd been like, you know, it was a forbidden shelf or anything, but they weren't sort of books. They were like, you'd like this. But I was like, oh, wonder what this is like. That was just so sort of gloriously fucked up, and it was that, I can't believe... I didn't know you were allowed to write this sort of this thing. Kind Great. Of I think it is that kind of um, transgression. Mm. I like, I fairly rarely read British fiction. That's a terrible thing to say, isn't it? And that's an awful kind of like generalisation as no, well. No, to be honest, I think there is just so much. Even if you confine yourself to American writers, that's still a thousand lifetimes of books to read. And I kind of like, I read a lot of stuff because of a sense of place. So sometimes I will think I want to go there and mm. quite often... I want to be there in my head, so I'll do that. And sometimes because of that, I read things that are set in Italy or France as well. I read a lot of Irish stuff 
too. I think Anne Enright is completely wonderful. But it's very interesting because we did the Green Road Act. And I'm not in a book group anymore. And it's partly because of the Anne Enright experience. Because I took it very seriously when, I, when we were, you know, and I kind of like really made notes and everything when I did the book group. And nobody got, nobody got her at all. They just looked at me kind of, even the bits that were funny. I said, but listen to this. It's hilarious. And they, no. And I actually thought, I just thought it was because I was Irish that they, they, they just couldn't see it as funny. I do love Brian Moore. Have you read any Brian Moore? I've never read any Brian Moore. Oh my God, you can't put down Brian Moore. But, oh, you'll just race through those. Once you start them, like The Doctor's Wife and, I mean... I devoured those. I can't even remember the names of them now because I read them all so quickly. What do they like? What do they feel like? They feel like very unwriterly. He, there's no technique very visible at all. You almost think you're not reading fiction. You almost feel as if he's just written this down and he's, gone, and he's left you to find it. So they're not very, they don't seem literary, but the observations of the people and of relationships are fantastic. I do, we do this a lot where we'll be like, you know, there was a book and there was a, it was a dog or may, maybe a horse and I think someone died or That's they moved. That's what happens and... to booksellers all the time. They say they've got people, it's got a blue cover and I think it's by Anna something. <laughs> and it's like, right, well, where do we start there? Like, I don't have enough time. God, do you not ever think there's just not enough time to get through the books you want to get through? I don't even enough to get through the books in this house that I haven't read yet and I keep buying more. Huge thanks to Diana. Follow her at Diana Henry Food on social media. From the Oven to the Table is published by Octopus. If you like eating food, you will adore it. If you've ever fantasised about spending the winter months living in the base of a hollowed-out tree, it shall become your Bible. I'm Daisy Buchanan, and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me, fellow bibliomaniacs. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at the Daisy Bee. Say hello, suggest some guests, and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked, for more information about our guests and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people find the podcast. But now I leave you with this anecdote from Gore Vidal about his failure to establish a cordial relationship with Truman Capote. I first met Truman at Ana Nan's apartment, Vidal once said. My first impression, as I wasn't wearing my glasses, was that it was a colourful ottoman. When I sat down on it, it squealed. It was Truman. See you soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.